1: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Daniel Howitt's interviews with the director for Living, Oliver Hermanis, and the film's writer, Kazuo Ishiguro. Mr. Williams, a little on the frosty side, perhaps.
2: Not too much fun and laughter. Brother like church. What is it up? Small wonder I didn't notice what I was becoming. Dad, you're right. If only to be alive for one day.
3: But I realize it. I don't know how. Ishiguro, thank you so much. It's such an honor to chat with you today. You described Ikiru as having a profound effect on you growing up. Uh, Tell me more about that. What was that profound effect that it had on you?
2: Hello, by the way. It's really nice to meet you, Daniel. A more obvious level, it was because I was a Japanese kid growing up in England. And it was actually very unusual for me to see any Japanese movies. In fact, it was very difficult for me to see any Japanese anything back in those days. And so when a Japanese movie would come on TV, I would watch it, even if it didn't look like the kind of movie I would like. And on the surface, Ikiru wasn't the kind of movie I I thought I would like when I was 10 years old, 11 years old. Uh, But I, I, I watched it and it had an enormous impact on me. And... As I was growing up, all the way through my growing up and went through my student years, it's a movie that I watched whenever I could. If it was was shown on TV and when I was older, I could go to art house cinemas, I would seek it out and, and I would watch it. And I think part of the reason was that from the age of 11 till I was 18, every day I used to travel to school by train and I would travel in with those commuters into London. Those office workers, uh, you know, uh, and they—they they look much like they do in living, you know, with those bowler hats and umbrellas. And I, I would overhear their conversations. You know, um, uh, I would—I would have to squeeze into the carriages with them. And um, it seemed to me that at a certain point, I would become one of them. You know, I would exchange my school uniform, and I would become them. In fact, there were people, you know, older boys from my school who—who who I would see turning into these guys And so I think partly because of that, I think watching a movie, all right, it's a Japanese movie about bureaucrats and officers, but I I kind of thought, all right, this is, maybe this is what my adult life is going to be like, you know. I might not work for a local authority, but you know, it might be for a bank or something, but it's going to be something like this. That's what people did when I was growing up. And um, I, I, you know, a small part of me thought, wouldn't it be great to be a rock star or something? But I, I thought, the chances are, you know, my life is going to be some version of the life you see in *Nikiru*, and there was something really inspirational as well as depressing about that film, you know, because it said, all right, you know, it's going to become stifling, it's going to, be, you know, the grind was going to be terrible, but you can, it's still possible you can make an effort, and and without changing yourself, without becoming a rock star and escaping, you know, in the confines of what what you've got. You can still change your life into something really meaningful and magnificent and heroic. And I, I thought that was that was a message I wanted to take with myself into take with me into, into adults into my working life. So I think it was always a really important movie for me. And I think in many ways it influenced a lot of the novels I went on to write.
3: Yeah, you you may not have become a rock star, but uh only a couple steps away, I feel like. Uh... So done done quite well, um, you know. In so many ways, corporations have, you know skyrocketed. Wage gap has increased, and so this idea of being quote unquote just a paper pusher is is more relevant than ever. But you you chose to keep the uh, setting as in the fifties. Why did you Why did you choose that setting?
2: Well, uh, par- partly, um, well, probably two reasons. But I absolutely agree with you about that point of, you know, a new kind of relevance of Ikiru, but I thought the, I thought seeing these offices, um, that, that, okay, it's, it's something once removed from the kind of home offices that we have, or the kind of way a lot of people work today, but I thought seeing that physically those kind of piles of papers in these offices and people having to move from one floor to the next and then have to come back to another floor. I thought that was like a physical embodiment, like a, a metaphor that would encapsulate how a lot of us lived and worked, although we now do so in a kind of a virtual world a lot of the time. I mean, it would somehow physically it'll it'll be a, a better picture you know because it's a concrete metaphor for something that kind of exists in a less concrete way these days you know but I think I agree with you I think that the, the sense of the, you know, the difficulty people have of connecting up the work that they do on a daily basis with with real human beings out there yeah, you know, uh, trying to understand how their contribution fits into some larger contribution that fits into a, a yet larger contribution that does something out there in the world. I mean, th- these things have, uh, are, are kind of soul-destroying in a way. Yeah. And yet, you know, we're, we're made to work hard and, and just, you know, carry on day after day. So I thought that side of things, that the work side of Ikiru would actually be something that would work in a modern movie and people could identify with. Also, you know, I had, I also had a kind of a historical fascination for that period, because it's a period of recovery after the Second World War. So there, there's a difference between today. There's a huge burden that has been put on the shoulders of just ordinary people, to you know, who have been exhausted by the war. They're bereaved by the war. Um, they're impoverished and and starved by by the war experience. And yet, somehow, we know uh, we know with the benefit of hindsight that that generation somehow pulled it off. You know that they just made a supreme effort, and and in the case of Britain, created a much better Britain um, with very little money and very little food. And, and you know, Japan also. You know that they came out from a period of militaristic rule and atomic bombs, and you know, inflicting terrible things on their neighbours um, in the Second World War. To becoming this prosperous liberal democracy, and so there, there, yeah, heroism collectively was possible. We know that with hindsight, you know. So, so to me, that was quite important as well. That that we're looking at not just people who, who who find it oppressive. The work is oppressive, but they manage to create do something worthwhile privately. I think if you look at somebody like Mr. Williams, I mean, you can see that all right, his is only a small contribution, but it's part of a larger thing that went on to build something that most people think was really worthwhile.
3: Absolutely. I'd love to hear more about where you got started with the adaptation. Obviously, this is adapted from Ikiru, but did you also revisit Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, or did you really want to stay away from that source material?
2: Uh, to be honest, I didn't realize that uh, <laughs> this Tolstoy story was was in the mix at all. I only, I was only alerted to that when I started to read the first reviews of the movie. (laughs) And I still haven't read that story by Tolstoy. I mean, I'm a big Tolstoy. I've read, I've read war and peace, you know, three times, you know, Mm. but I've never read that particular story. Mm -hmm. Somebody told me that it's not very like either Ikiru or living. It is about a bureaucrat who's dying, but it doesn't have, have that kind of premise. But, but I was kind of encouraged rather than discouraged when I heard that because it, it you know it told me something I already knew I guess but it underlined it that Kurosawa himself you know often adapted from like big sources you know like like Shakespeare you know he made these two big Shakespeare films Throwing a Blood and Ran and he they were very free interpretations yeah. You know? Um, he he did he made a, a version of a Dostoevsky novel he did. Um, Edmund Bain and Maxim Gorky, and, and now we learn that you know, Ikiru perhaps was inspired by a Tolstoy story. You know, I, th- I think it underlines the fact that, you know, we shouldn't be inhibited about taking material and adapting it and carrying it on, you know, because Kurosawa was doing that himself. Um, Shakespeare was doing it himself. Yeah. It, it's kind of how storytelling works. Down the years and down the centuries, we have stories and we adapt them and we retell them. I think we've been doing this ever since we were sitting around campfires in in caves, you know. And the modern version of this, I think, is you know, kind of, are things like remakes of movies, adaptations of books into TV series or into movies, um, uh, you know, reimaginings of old stories. Um, you know, I think I think I think this is what storytelling is and you know so when I heard that I I kind of I felt kind of encouraged you know because the the more limited view is that oh you shouldn't you, you know you shouldn't ch- uh, change a masterpiece in cinema yeah you know. but he you he take that attitude some of these great movies are just going to die. You know, they're just going to wither on the branch. And I know already that very few people I come across have watched the Kurosawa movie. You know, they know that there is such a movie. But, I mean, when you say, well, when did you last see it? They say, well, well, 60 years ago. or I've never seen it, you know. Um, And so I'm really pleased that we have a new movie. I'm really proud of our movie. And I also hope people go back to the original Kurosawa.
3: Were by law plus terms and apply. See website for details absolutely well thank you so much for your time I really appreciate the film uh, and and I, I agree I hope more people continue to see living and to revisit the original as well Great.
2: thank you so much thank you really nice to see you do you think we shouldn't out the police about what will the police get is a couple of hours late for work a couple of hours late for work who would ever have thought this man, until yesterday, was living a shell of an existence. And I so very
1: much do not wish to do so.
3: Oliver, thank you so much for your time today. I was at the AFI Festival and really love the film so I'm excited to talk with you more. Thank you thanks
0: for having me Daniel.
3: So uh, adapting one of the most acclaimed films of all time not exactly a small task um, as you were preparing did you sort of avoid re-watching Ikiru or did you want to keep the material separate or how did you prepare?
0: I, I watched it once uh I watched it once before I was officially doing the, this. I I was asked to do it, and then I, it's the knee-jerk thing you do. Like if somebody sends you a script going based on Ikiru, you know the next thing you do is watch Ikiru before you before you do anything else. And so I watched it that one time. I did think when I was watching it in my house in South Africa that I need to concentrate because I might not watch it again. Uh, and so I watched it once and. You know, it's it's much longer than our film. It's Two and a half hours. It's a lot more dense. Um, and I, the thing I think that I, as I've been saying, I took away from it was the visuals very much. I was I, I consciously kind of clocked them and banked them, and uh, that was that was as much as I did with Ikaru. And interestingly, Bolnai and Kazu Shiguru also really only watched it once um, before they embarked on on their aspects of living um and and then for the rest of it we sort of just never spoke about it so the dirty word was curse kurosawa mm.
3: yeah what what attracted you most when you got that script what made you feel like yes i'm the i'm the right person to bring this story to life
0: i don't know if you ever think you're the right person you always go wow interesting why they're asking me and you kind of try to work out why they're asking you because you sometimes go like do they see something in what i do that i don't see because to be honest like my last movie was about you know shame in the 80s in the South african army and uh queer sort of coming of age story uh so i was sort of more baffled than anything else um but it was also you know i suppose i think i've learned that that's a good thing it's nice when when you get asked to do things that don't necessarily fit i i I, I work with so many actors who, you know, feel very pigeoned into getting the same thing, uh, and so I, I like the idea that I was being asked to make something that made no sense to me. Uh, and so, equally, it felt important to say yes. But I, ultimately, I said yes because, you know, there was this opportunity to work with Ishiguro, and who doesn't want to do that?
3: Absolutely. You mentioned the visuals earlier as what you clocked from your that that one rewatch of Ikuru. I would love to hear more about the visual style specifically. I was wondering. A major theme of the film is this sort of strictness of of English society at the time, and I was wondering how that restrained nature of being proper um, and how that how that influenced the visual style.
0: Yeah, so I think what I took from the visuals of the original was as all for me, Kurosawa is about composition. Like you know, you look at a, you look at a frame of a Kurosawa film, any of his films, it's 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 extraordinary. There's it there's real poetry to the way that he thinks and how he thought about. Telling a story in a picture, and I started out as a photographer, so for me that that was always the thing. I would tell stories in a picture because I, I worked in reportage for for press agencies, um, and I just remembered from watching Ikaru this one time two or three years ago, how he framed things. There's a there's a one of the things that from those visuals that I took, which I don't know how well you know the original, but one of the most amazing things he does in the original, is that he has a shot of a of a mirror above a piano. And there's a woman dancing in the mirror, and the camera flips up and pulls back, and you realize that you're in this room with the with the piano man, and she's dancing, and that's the scene where he sings the song. And so I I was I was not going to completely steal it. I wasn't going to do it exactly the same way, but I did know. Okay, I also want to play with mirrors, and so living is completely overrun with mirrors. I put mirrors absolutely everywhere because I love the idea of this duality. And in our version of that scene, I I do have the image that I start. In the mirror, but it's a different kind of mirror. It's a British mirror, and it pulls back onto Bull. And then, you know, in the scene where he's talking to her in the cafe and telling her that he's dying, I put a mirror right above his head so that I could actually see Amy the whole time. You know, so we could always get a sense of her. We often pulled focus to her in the mirror. He does a whole bunch of scenes where he talks into the mirror. Uh, he often looks in the mirror. <laughs> I, I went nuts with the mirrors, um, and it 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 was a it was a way of of, I guess, celebrating the original, but also my sort of sense of this idea, conceptual idea around uh, the life he's living and the life he could have lived and this idea of reflection. And um, one of the things I loved that we did with Bill when he's looking in that mirror is that it had a bevel to it. So you sort of saw his face multiple times. Uh, And I think those kinds of, those are the things that excite me because I like to work with that level of like visual tapestry.
3: It's gorgeous. I love that sequence the, uh, where he sings the old Rowan Tree. And that's definitely something I wanted to dive into because it's one of the most uh, emotional and beautiful scenes in the film. And of course, uh, revisited it toward the end. Can you just tell me about putting that sequence together, the sequence where he sings the song?
0: Yeah, sure. It was, um, it was one of those days where you've got lots of extras and it's a very small room and it gets hot very quickly. And you're sort of, you know, you're... Bill's learned the song in advance. He's had rehearsals and he's a bit anxious about it because he's, I think he's nervous because he's nervous about getting it wrong. I think it's always that fear of, of singing in front of, not just a bunch of people, but a camera and a lot of other people. And what, but he did something really amazing. I think, which was really clever. He befriended one of the extras and he told her to sort of stand in his eyeline out, out of camera. He sort of chatted to her and, and they, they, they became fast friends and, and what he would do is he would start singing, and then at some point he would look at her. And just her, he just decided that she was just a face that he could look at. And by looking at her face, it would sort of the emotion would kind of pour out to him. And he would then be singing the song with somebody in his line of sight that would sort of make the the words mean something to him. And I I watched him do that very cleverly. And I thought that was a real real pro tip to do that, you know, to to find something and someone, because I think it would have been much harder if he had to just sort of sing with his eyes closed and manifest. Um, And so once he started doing that and I sort of saw the power of that, you know, it just kind of evolved. But it was also one of those things where he did it a few times and I would walk from my monitor to Bill to go and talk to him. And I would have like a crew, all the crew would be crying. So it walks with the crew and they'd be in tears. And I always, I thought that, you know, they will stop crying after five takes or they'll stop crying after six takes. But I'll, honestly, our makeup and hair designer, I don't think she stopped crying all day. She cried every time we did it. Uh, so that's when you know it resonates because bulls resonate. It's
3: coming out of bull ball in such a real way. That's really cool. You've said in other interviews that to prove yourself to get this role, kind of had to bond with Kazuo over your love of uh, mid-century British cinema. Uh, So I'd love to hear, uh, of course, in addition to Ikiru, what were some other influences that really, uh, whether visually or, or for the story, influenced you along the way?
0: I think one of the most amazing collaborations that we had, Ishiguro and I, in terms of the tone and the world of it was uh ish is very was very helpful in exposing me to the fact that in the 40s and the 50s in the uk in england there was this real influence from germany this real influence of 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 you know fritz lang essentially you know this like this this mash between early ealing broadway and uh, ealing studios and 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 expressionism and then you know at the same time hitchcock was working in america and his english and even his influences um and the way that Hitchcock was photographing San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles in his movies. And, and I, I really thought about that a lot. I was like, how do I photograph London in a way that feels cel- cel- like celebratory of those, of those filmmakers. And, you know, that's when we came up with our complicated top shots, you know, the real architectural stuff, which is a sort of homage to Fritz Lang. And I think one of the most Langy things I did was I just did a very, <laughs> um, sort of pornographic shot of the wheels of a train. I was like, this is the much as, as I'll get. I'll just, like, mount a camera onto the side of a steam engine and just have, like, the big mechanics. And that felt, it felt right to do that in living. And it's one of those shots where I was standing on the station I was like, how quickly can we rig the camera to this train? Because, and it's in the film, it wasn't something I thought we would probably put in, but, you know, why don't you add the sound and the mechanics of it, it, feel, it felt right. And so I think those filmmakers were sort of, percolating in my head and so there were moments where they would come out of me in some interesting way
3: well one last question before i let you go obviously i'm so excited for more audiences to experience living what's it like watching your films with an audience do you feel like (laughs) you do you feel like you learn something new or see things in a different way when you watch it with an audience
0: it's very fraught because you're watching it with a very heightened audience. You're either watching it with a test audience for the first time and you're like you're, you're reacting to absolutely everything that they do, whether they scratch their heads or shift their weight or shrug their shoulders. You're like, oh, goodness, they're going to give the film a bad score. Uh, or you're watching it at the Venice Film Festival with 5,000 people and you're doing the same thing. You're going, oh, goodness, I'm going to walk out of this theatre and they're going to be the world's worst reviews of my movie uh it's very rare that i could ever sit with an audience and just be sort of part of it like part of this ocean of reaction i'm generally just skittish like uh, i'm misreading absolutely everything that people are doing uh so to answer your question i generally avoid watching my films with, with an audience
1: <laughs>
3: no i understand i understand awesome well oliver again thank you so much for your time and thank you for the film and best of luck
1: thank you so much daniel Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interviews with the director for Living, Oliver Romanis, and the screenwriter Kazuo Ishiguro here on the next Best Picture podcast. Living is currently playing in limited release from Sony Pictures Classics and is up for your consideration for this year's Academy Awards for Best Actor for Bill Nye and Best Adapted Screenplay.